Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hi, everybody. Today is January 21, 2015. Can you believe it? And this is The Mixed Experience, the weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. And it's the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed. I'm your host, Heidi DeRoe, and resident mixed chick. And I'm African-American and Danish. And today we have a really fantastic guest to talk about the mixed experience and her writing and her work. But first, a couple of announcements as usual. First of all, uh, please go over to my personal website, www.heididerow.com, and you'll see that I have a couple of engagements coming up in Santa Barbara as well as Amherst, Massachusetts. So if you're in either of those places, I'd love for you to come out and to meet you when I'm speaking and reading in those places. And then here's something that's even more near and dear to my heart, which is the Mixed Remixed Festival. So as you guys know, I produce a festival project each year that features writers and artists and scholars and community leaders and performers and filmmakers all dealing with the subject of the mixed experience, multiracial, multicultural stories uh, about people connecting across culture, religion, and other divides. And we are looking for our programming right now. We're about to do our programming, and submissions are due on January 30th by midnight Pacific. So if you are someone who is interested in being a part of that, please go to www.mixedremix.org. If you want to attend, you can attend June 13th, 2015. And here was something else we just wanted to make sure we let all of you know. We are accepting individuals for panels. So if you have a story or experience or some kind of expertise or angle that you would like to share, but you can't put a full panel together on your own, that's okay. Go ahead to the submissions page and submit under panelists and we'll put you on the right panel that you're supposed to be on. We really want to make sure that we have a diverse, which is a strange thing to say in a multiracial community, I guess, but a very diverse set of experiences and thoughts and places where people are coming from, and we think this is probably a really great way to do it. So if you're a student, if you're a scholar, if you're a community leader, uh, if you're a blogger, put your hat in the ring. There's no price for submission and we're looking for people who have interesting stories to tell. Okay, here we go, the show. I, I was really uh, nervous about reaching out to Leila Lalami, our guest today. I knew her first as a fellow student in a writing workshop, and I think it must have been two weeks after I met her, she suddenly had this great book deal with a lot of buzz around her amazing, wonderful work. That was her first book, her collection, Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits. And she's just gone on to knock it out of the park ever since, especially with the latest novel that she's written, The Moore's Account. Let me tell you a little bit more about her. 
Layla Lalami is the author of the novels Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award, Secret Sun, which was on the Orange Prize long list, and The Moore's Account, which we'll talk about today, which was a New York Times notable book and a Wall Street Journal best book of the year. Her essays and opinion pieces have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, The Nation, The Guardian, The New York Times, and in many anthologies. Her work has been translated into 10 languages, and she's the recipient of a British Council Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship, and a Landon Foundation Residency Fellowship, and she's currently an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of California at Riverside. I am so very pleased to welcome Layla Lallanen. Hello. Hi. Hi. Okay. I should be intimidated by this whole situation, but I'm actually just going to play the part of fangirl instead. Oh, stop. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I was excited to talk to you because, you know, I've seen, I guess, your career from the beginning of the publishing yes. piece of it, and, and that's so exciting, and I want to talk to you about this new book, but I have to start off the interview in the traditional way, which is with this question. Um, what are you? <laughs> Certainly you mean who are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I let people answer any way you want. Trying to take back that question yeah. that is so often asked of people yeah. who live at the intersection of race yeah. and culture and and have a quote unquote ethnically ambiguous yeah. look. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it's a, certainly a question I've been asked many, many, many times over the years. And I think um, I think it's because, you know, appearance-wise, it's very confusing. And so I was born and raised in, in Morocco. And Moroccans are mongrel people. So um, somebody from the Middle East might look at Moroccans and not consider them fully Arab because they're a mix. Um, they're mixed with Berber. Most Moroccans are a mix of Arab and Berber. And then um, somebody else from Africa might think, well, they're not quite African because they're lighter-skinned, you know. And then somebody Mm -hmm. else who's from, I don't know, other parts of Asia might think, well, those guys, they're not quite Muslim, you know. So it's, it's, they're, Moroccans have always been at the confluence of different cultures and different religions and different races and so I think that gets reflected also in our appearances. And so I've been mistaken for many different um, ethnicities and races. Oftentimes people think I'm Hispanic. Other times people uh, think I'm, I don't know, Persian, which is completely different. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's so I, I get, it's, I think it's very confusing uh, for, for, for people. Um, and so that's, that's why the question of, you know, is what are you? And, uh, um, you know, I, I I never quite know what to say because I think it means people are looking to put a label. And yes, when you put a label, absolutely. it's, yeah, it's it's an attempt to understand and fit you in a box. And when you don't fit in a box, um, it troubles people. And it's a little bit harder to um, harder to comprehend. The the polite version of the question, in my experience, has been, oh, where are you from? Yeah. As if that would suddenly make it 
make sense to them? You know, what is the landscape in which a person that looks like you would actually come out of the earth, I guess, is what they're asking. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's but it's very... interesting. I mean, it's this idea that if only we knew where people were from, we somehow would understand them and would, but we don't. I mean, people are, you know, regardless of where they're from, people are so different. Um, so individual, so complicated that knowing where they're from, I mean, how does that help you understand who they are? I, I don't, um, I don't get it. Um, well, you're, you're from Morocco. You were yes. born there, you grew up there, but yes. you've been in the United States now for a couple of decades at least, yes. I think. Yes, yes. So more than 20 how, years, yeah. how would you describe your relationship, and I, I guess I'm asking it this way because the show is called The Mixed Experience, and what I like to talk about is all the ways in which mixing happens, and it's not necessarily between races, um, and it's not just black and white, mm-hmm. but it really is about the ways in which we're interconnected. Mm-hmm. And I would say your book, uh, your your life experience is very much part of the story of the mixed experience because the diverse experience. But I wonder if you would agree or if you did agree, how would you explain it? How would I explain what? I'm sorry, I'm not sure. How, how would you describe or or would you describe that you're part of the mixed experience as, as um, I think about it? I, I think I would. I would say, yes, I am part of it. And the reason is that it's, the narrative of my life, the story of my life, is not um, doesn't unfold in a very straight line. It's not linear. I mean, there's all kinds of um, things that have happened to sort of complicate that line. So, for example, I didn't expect to become an immigrant. That was just wasn't something I ever thought of. I, when I came to the United States in 1992, it was to attend USC and you know, it just wasn't, I wasn't thinking that I was going to stay. Um, But I did end up staying. And then I discovered that in, in, so in Los Angeles, I discovered that uh, 40% of the people that live here were not only not born in Los Angeles, but were not born in the country. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting city to, in which to be an immigrant. Um, because everybody's from somewhere else. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that that gives, I would say that that would put it under the, the, the sort of rubric of mixed experience. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if when you came to the United States, you had kind of that same shocking feeling that I had when I moved at age 11 from Europe and identified as American and then suddenly came to America and there was this thing called race. Mm-hmm. Specifically, there was something about being black or being white. Mm-hmm. And how did you encounter that or did you find that I, you encountered it? I, I did and, and fairly quickly and it was kind of a shock. When I, when, so when you enroll um, in college here, there's all kinds of forms. And when I arrived, I had to fill out a bunch of paperwork. And then there was, you know, you had to say your race, which just I found unbelievable. Nobody had ever asked me what my race was on any form when I was living in Morocco. And 
So for the first time, I had to think about it. It wasn't something I had thought about. So I looked at the definitions. And I didn't know what box I was supposed to fill out. And so then it said, you know, so Asian, okay, not Asian, no connection. You know, so you go through all of them. And then suddenly you're like, wait a minute. Um, it says here that for, for white is for anybody born in Europe, the Middle East or North Africa, so I should check Caucasian, which blew my mind. It blew my mind that I would have to be counted as Caucasian when it just wasn't something that, you know, I didn't, you know, when I walk down the street or when I'm in class or when I interact with people or when they see my name, no one thinks of me as white. No one. And, and, but that's what I had, that's, that's what I, had to put on that form so I did that for a few years and I've just come to frankly I've come to resent it because um, it's not as if I've had the privileges of being white and so I you know in recent years I've taken to checking the box called other Um, so that's what (laughs) that's why you're on the show I I figured you know the curly hair doesn't really fit anywhere yes Interesting the ways in which we try to figure out what those boxes mean, uh, especially when the stated privilege, like you said, isn't something that you're actually granted, and and not that you should be able to get it, but it just it shows the absurdity of what they're trying to say. It's completely absurd, but it's also completely ignorant. I mean, this idea that people, for example, the country that I know best, which is Morocco, I mean. The idea that Moroccans are white, when when if you go to Morocco and you see that diversity of races, I mean, there are, there's a huge section of the population that just no one in their right mind would call white, and that's what they would have to check in these boxes. Right. So it's a very it's a very strange way of looking at race. It's looking at it in a in a sort of binary way. You're either this. Or that, and um, you can't be anything in between. And if you're in between, then it's just it's confusing, and we don't know what to do with you. So better not to think about it. I um, I, I like that your character in the Moore's account, your second mm-hmm. novel, your third book, mm-hmm. inhabits this space as well. He inhabits this in between space. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the inspiration for the book because it is actually inspired by a real historical figure. Yes, yes. So some years ago, about five years ago, I was reading a book about Moorish Spain and I came across a brief mention of the first, he was called the first black explorer of America and the mention was that he was a Moroccan slave who had been part of a Spanish expedition to Florida uh, which had landed there in 1528 with the goal of claiming it for the Spanish crown. Uh, but the expedition failed, and within a year there were only four survivors, including this slave, and together these four survivors became the first outsiders to cross the North American continent. And when I came across that mention, I was completely intrigued and fascinated, and I thought, 
how come I've never heard of this guy? Who is he? <laughs> how did he end up on this expedition? And how can I find out more? So it was really a, to satisfy my personal curiosity that I went out and bought this uh, travelogue that, that was written about this expedition by one of the survivors, a Spanish nobleman by the name of Cabeza de Vaca, who served as the treasurer of that expedition and years later after he returned to Spain wrote about it. And I read that book. It's a very slim book, and it's actually the first uh, narrative of Spanish exploration we have of North America. And instead of answering my questions about this slave, whom the Spaniards called Estebanico, um, that book only raised more questions because it had a lot of gaps, a lot of silences. And, for example... What exactly did it say about him? Well, it's very interesting. So... Even though he, uh, this slave, this Moroccan slave, ended up learning a number of indigenous languages and serving as translator for the other three Spaniards, whenever he's mentioned in the narrative, he's described uh, about a handful of time as Estebanico. The rest of the time, he's described as the slave or uh, the Negro, and that's it. So his function and his race are mentioned more often than his name, even though he played this really crucial role for them. And, um, you know, there's no mention of any women. There's no mention of any indigenous people, except with one exception. And then also the fact that after they were found and they were asked to provide testimony about what happened to them, because he was a slave, Estebanico's testimony was never recorded. So we really don't know what his views were about all everything that was happening. The only thing we know about him is what Cabeza de Vaca tells us, which is that he was born in Azmor, which is a small city south of Casablanca, and that he was the slave of, um, that he spoke Arabic, and that he was the slave of another member of the expedition, a man by the name of Dorantes. And that's it. And I just was so fascinated by this man who had somehow managed to live in three different cultures, you know, in Morocco, in Spain, and in indigenous culture in, the, in, in America, who spoke all these different languages, who was in some ways far more sophisticated than the Spaniards, had not been able to provide any um, any testimony on the official record. And I, he seemed sort of to be this mysterious, forgotten figure. And I thought, hmm, that would make for an interesting novel to basically go through the exact same events, but to tell them from the point of view of this, this sort of witness. This, this I, I have to tell you, mm-hmm. as, a, as a writer myself, that's a, like a, an inspired way to start a story, yes. but you have filled in so much. I mean... It, and it's not research. I mean, it's a beautifully written book, but you have made him so complete. Yeah. You know, where he appeared as one sentence, he now appears as yeah. a whole man, as a yeah. whole complicated man. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was, I really loved that you went back and forth in time, that you complicated him so much yeah. mm-hmm. and really fleshed out his history before mm-hmm. he was a slave so that mm-hmm. as a reader you went into his story mm-hmm. I, I guess I felt I felt more kinship with him because had you started with him enslaved mm-hmm. you know I don't I don't know if I would have gotten it but yeah 
a lot like 12 years of slave. He, yeah. he lived a, a life, a full yeah. life, and then he sells himself into slavery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, why that choice for you? Well, because, I mean, when you read in Cabeza de Vaca's book, what do you, what do you see? You see that he is defined as a slave. He's defined by his function and his usefulness to the Spaniards, which is his facility with languages his ability to move among indigenous tribes. Uh, he's smart, all of that. And I wanted to know something about him that wasn't just his usefulness, that wasn't just the fact that he was a slave. So because of that, by necessity, I had him uh, be a free man, as everyone is, right? And um, that's that's where the idea came, that he that he is born a free man and then slavery comes later. There there were certain aspects of history, certain historical events that I was able to use to my advantage, which is that there happened to be a very, very, very severe drought uh, in Morocco in the year 1520. And uh, we know that many thousands uh, of Moroccans were enslaved during that, that era. So that coincided with about the age he would, you know, if he was a young man, it fit with my narrative if he was a young man and had to leave Morocco around that time. So I was able to kind of work backwards and have this whole full life for him before he joined this expedition. So the story is no longer just the story of the expedition. It's the story of this man um, and his life before and after. It's also a, a wonderful story about his his complexity. I mean, he is a slave. He's enslaved, and yet he's he really leads this group of of men. He translates for them. He protects them. He he helps them find food, um, and then he also helps them. Ultimately, I think see women in a different way, mm-hmm. and I really love that because, as you just said, there were no women in the accounting, mm-hmm. and he. He's a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I would go that far, but he definitely he definitely was able to see the women in a way that the men didn't. Um, and I think part of the reason is that he himself had been enslaved. So he was forced to go from someone who could speak his opinion, from someone who could make his own decisions, um, to to being someone who had to be a witness, who had to follow and just observe. And so that is the role that women were also confined to at the time. And so that gives him a certain kinship with them. And also he has to perform what were considered at the time women's tasks, right? He has to do the cooking and he has to do the cleaning and all of that. All of these elements give him a kind of empathy for them. So when, when the mistreatment begins, he does he does feel something for those women, and I think um even even though it takes him a while to to speak up about it, he eventually does um so yeah, yeah. the Moore's account is um obviously historical fiction, but it also reads a little bit like adventure mm-hmm. and i I wonder how much of an adventurer you are, or was this really something you could understand from the historical records that you read? 
Well, I mean, obviously there was a lot of research I had to do. You know, I started out by reading the Cabeza de Vaca's book, and I had the idea, you know, when when you come across a very juicy story, you think, wow, this would make a great book, but then the actual <laughs> work of writing it <laughs> is a uh, different yeah. story because when I started thinking about it, I thought, no way, there's no way I can I can do this. I don't know anything about 16. So how did you do it? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm oh, my God. Years, I'm five years into this <laughs> Honestly, sometimes it amazes me that I that I even did it. Um, so it was a lot of um, research. Basically, at the at the end of the Penguin Classics uh, edition of Cabeza de Vaca's book, there's a bibliography. So that I had already a whole bunch of books to start with, and I'm very fortunate in that this particular expedition has always intrigued academics, and there are many people who've devoted their academic careers to study in it. So I knew a lot about the expedition itself. What I didn't, and just by reading all these books, what I didn't always know um, are things like details that I wouldn't, that I didn't know I would need until I needed them. For example, you know, if they're going through Florida, what kind of tree would I be able to put in a scene, you know, just because I don't know what's native or not native to Florida. Um, and 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 always always the challenge of staying in the point of view of of this man. So just because I know that a particular tree exists in Florida doesn't mean that they would have a word for it. So things have to be described within the restrictions of the vocabulary available to them at the time. So it's like an exercise of writing, but with all these restrictions. At the same time. It forces you to be very creative because if you if you have a constraint, you have to work around it. You have to solve that problem. So every day was like a new a new case of problem solving. And I also well, want to say that it wasn't just overnight. I mean, it does take time, and so it's not just you're not going to solve and do all of that research and get the voice and get the characters and get all of this stuff done right away. It does take time. Um, that's what that's what made it um, such a difficult project to undertake in the beginning, but at but at the end, that's also what made it so rewarding. It's a it's a really wonderful read, and I feel like it, it really you capture it all in this moment. And I I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but he is feeling bereft, and he thinks at first all is lost. But then he says, but no, what I do have left is my story. And you just told it in such a, a wonderful, wonderful way. It, Thank you so his much. voice is amazing. I, um, I'm wondering what's next for you. Are, are you able to tell us a little bit? <laughs> I, have, I actually have several ideas. Um, and there's one I'm working on at the moment, which is very, very different from the other three books I've done. I feel like with each new book, I, I try to do something different which maybe isn't the smartest thing. I know nowadays everybody's <laughs> Everybody wants a sequel. Yes. Everybody wants, you know, once they figure it out, what, 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 you, what you're doing, they want you to basically reproduce it in book after book after book. Yes. Grow your audience that way. Um, but but um, for this next one, I wanted to do something completely different. And I, I'm afraid I can't really say because it's so early on. Um, yes. But all I'll say is that it, it is completely different from this one. Yeah. Well, I, I'm excited for it. Um, you are traveling with a paperback in the spring, I think. 
Um, not the paperback's out in August, so I have to. In August. Yet. Yeah. Oh yeah. shoot. Okay. <laughs> well, I <laughs> thought it was coming out sooner, but go buy it in hardcover right now. It's yes. A wonderful hardcover. book. <laughs> it's The Moore's Account by Layla Lalami. Uh, you heard it's already received so many accolades, and um, and I'm so jealous. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm just wondering when it will kick in. You know, I don't know if you started with lots of different angles, which is what I've done, and I, I think I'm on the right path now, but I'm just not sure yet. Yeah, it's, man, I have I have so much respect for anyone who writes a book. I really do. And just because you've written one doesn't mean that you can write the next, you know. Sometimes I look at that blank page and I think, how the hell do I start? You know, it's um but it's it's all you have to think about is is the present moment. You just have to get through this one chapter, this one scene, yes. heck, this one paragraph. <laughs> and and if you can, you know, complete that one, then you're still, you know, day by day, you're making progress until until you get That's to the true. end. Yeah, I'm taking it to heart. I'm gonna I'm gonna let I'll let you know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Layla, thank you so much for joining us today on the Mixed Experience. It was great to have you. Um, everybody, make sure you go get this book. It's really it's a great read. I actually read it in two afternoons. Uh, oh. I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> I, it would have been one afternoon, but I had to have dinner. Um, the Moore's Account by Layla Lalami. Thank you so much, and, and keep me posted on what's next when you're ready. I will. I will. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. I was so excited to talk with her. As I told you, I met her, gosh, it must have been a little over 10 years ago, right when she was on the verge of publishing and everything that she's come out with has been so incredible, and she keeps topping herself, and she topped herself again with the Moore's account, uh, which you should go out and get. It's from Pantheon. Okay, my name is Heidi DeRoe, and I'm your host of The Mixed Experience, the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed. And guess what, guys? We're back. On Monday, we have a a guest. I was able to get him on. So go to the website, www.themixedexperience.com. We'll be on at 5 o'clock on Monday with a guest who has a great new book called More Love, Less Panic. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So join us again next Monday live at 5 p.m., or you can always download the show from iTunes. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.